Hi, and welcome to the C-Suite Perspective Podcast, where we talk about systems and processes. My name is Chris Gilseth, and I'm the COO of Amazatic Solutions, an agency that develops apps and custom software solutions. The mission of this podcast is to bring together experienced leaders so that we can share ideas and together elevate the industry. If you want to be a guest on our show or know somebody that's a good fit, go to go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. That is go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. Hello and welcome to this episode of C-Suite Perspective on Systems and Processes. I'm excited today. We have Rob Delf with us from Meta, and uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, but I want to uh, first uh, introduce Rob. He has a background as a tech entrepreneur, building a couple of different companies, and uh, we're going to hear about a couple of them, and not just kind of a little bit of the growth and, and kind of the process of building these companies, but also uh, what they've done for kind of an industry and, and the in approach to, to an industry when it comes to data and, and scalability that way. Robert, or Rob, welcome to, this, to the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Um, excited to talk through some of those things. Yeah. So tell me first, so right now you're the CEO of Meta. And you guys are doing some pretty awesome things in the, especially in the entertainment space and the video on demand market. And, yep. and we'll get into that in a second, but I know you started uh, before that in, with uh, RightSide, was it? Yeah, RightsLine. Yeah. RightsLine. And, uh, and with RightsLine, you guys worked on the IP of people and kind of how they manage that and how they can use that. And so I don't know if you want to start with kind of how you started RightsLine or or kind of what kind of the, the, the bigger picture of what RightsLine did for people. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, you know, RightsLine was founded, you know, out of uh, frustration and that frustration was really around um, organizations, big and small, in the film and television industry, um, not having uh, quick access to the rights that they held for their titles. So, you know, as we kind of moved into a, a world of more connected devices and content everywhere, and everything else that has happened, where we start to watch whatever content we want on whatever screen or whatever app. Um, there was an underlying foundational techno technology component that was missing, and that was the ability to quickly determine, are you allowed to do that? Um, because historically, that was something that came pretty quick because the whole video on demand kind of, it didn't happen overnight, but it happened pretty quickly compared to the rest of you know, the industry involvement in that, in that space. Yeah. I mean, it was really nine years, um, you know, from 2012 to 2020, 2021, um, we saw that shift, uh, cord cutting. It seems to all, you know, these things always seem to happen overnight. Um, but, but realistically that's kind of been happening for say nine years. I was amazed yesterday because I read this article about Tesla and I was like, it's an overnight success. No, the company has been running for 18 years, you know, like, right. And, and we all sort of collective, collectively forget 
the the transition in the film and television space, um, you know, to connected apps and devices really started, say, 2003 and four with YouTube, um, you know, coming online and everyone being like, oh, wait a second, the internet can deliver the same quality or substantially the same quality, um, you know, and then and then Netflix rolling over their model kind of 2010, uh, and then everything accelerated from there. So really, you know, rights lines, um, you know, position is in that was, hey, we're going to have way more distribution options. You need to know where the rights for all your stuff is. And, you know, really, you know, moving into meta, um, it can really be thought of an extension around the supply chain of getting film and television into your favorite apps. So how do you, if you're creating all this great television and film content, how do you get that in front of consumers? And right now we refer to that as a digital supply chain in entertainment. So how are things packaged up? How is the video encoded and transferred and all of the rest of it? Um, and what Meta does is it connects a lot of those, those dots and solves some processes, pro- process problems in the middle. No, I think that's a very interesting uh, thing you're talking about that. And, and actually what makes me curious about this whole process you talk about that from a, you know, a movie and entertainment perspective and being able to, to you know, deliver the content on different devices. Um, we talked earlier um, prior to, to the, the podcast about being able to do it also in the right uh, languages and, and uh, uh, geographical areas and so forth as well. What I find interesting and, and what may be applicable kind of a, at a broader scale for, for our audience is really what you're talking about is you're taking data and you're making data scalable, but a lot of times people talk about doing that for their own organization, whether it's business intelligence tools or other kind of kind of re- reporting or, or machine learning and automation and so forth. But you're really looking at it from an industry angle. And so what I wanna ask about is, what are some of the experiences you've had kind of tackling that with wearing the industry hat on and that maybe other companies and in other industries can learn from. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that there's, you know, because of how connected all of the systems and supply chains are in any industry now. So, I mean, you could, you could apply this to auto parts or plumbing fixtures or whatever it might be. There are, um, you know, common data sets and taxonomies of master data. Um, and really what, you know, what, what we're doing is we're ag- <laughs> aggregating all of that master data together um, into sort of like a superset of all of the film and television content that's out there. Um, and by doing so and connecting it to individual assets, we actually give the producers or you know and, and distributors of this content the opportunity to leverage a lot of tools to reduce the friction in the supply chain. So you know, just the transfer of information. You've got unique identifiers and it is coupled with the, you know, Norwegian synopsis of Top Gun and the long synopsis and everything else that is required in order for that to play out on HBO Max's new service they just launched in Spain. The right metadata with the right language with the right files. Um, and historically, that's that process has just taken um, lots and lots of people and spreadsheets uh, and we're systematizing it and making it process-driven. So for applying that kind of across different verticals or different industries, what, really what you're talking about is being, being able to identify 
each data point and how they are connected together and then creating a process around that to be able to distribute that across what you refer to as the digital supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, how we're going about it and and I and I see this, you know, working in other industries is, is really focusing on the pain points that it's causing, whether that's time and inefficiency or whatever it is, because you're going to have to have buy-in in terms of common data sets and taxonomies. And the only way that's going to happen is if um, all the constituent parts see value, right? Bye. So if, if, if you think about it from our side, when we when we're selling into an industry, which is what we're doing, and we're selling both software and a data service, what we're saying is, hey, we can save you money in these ways by removing the friction, you know, between your business partners. Um, and by doing that, then it's like, oh, okay, got it. I, you know, I understand. If you're going to come up with a single thing that everyone has to adopt, you have to have a one-to-many kind of sales process, and you know, that's that has its own challenges, right? Because you know, the initial flag is, well, why, why, are, why should you be doing that? You know, why shouldn't, you know, why shouldn't we come up with something ourselves? And, and you can break down those barriers slowly by just saying, look, it's easy and efficient and you're protected and all the rest of it. So, so what was your hardest challenge when you had to get all these parties to accept, uh, essentially agree to, I would say one method of doing it or, or kind of the way you were trying to do it and, and make them all cooperate in that sense? You know, I think the I think the interesting thing there is always lead with a straw man. You know, come come out of the gates and say, "Hey, we've put a lot of time and thought into this. What do you think? This works." And then take feedback as it comes along. Because the reality is, you know, if a structure and a set of processes, you know, work, um there's there's no reason for someone to try and re-engineer it, you know, another way. And, and, you know, we, we've also, you know, we take very seriously the feedback that we get in the marketplace. So essentially you did all the hard work and you show them that you've done the hard work so they don't have to do it. And then you make it, but you also position yourself in being, like you said, open to that feedback and being flexible and maybe changing away if you needed to. Is that Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think that the common response when we go through our, you know, presentations and product demonstrations is, wow, you've put a lot of time and effort into thinking about how to do this the right way, you know, and, and, and really anything across any industry, you know, that's going to be the key is, you know, here's a, here's a better way of approaching it. And we've done the hard work up front. Yeah. So what would be your tip? Like if somebody is either looking to kind of start something, uh, especially a tech business, or uh, if they are already in an industry and they're looking to do something similar that to what you've done, but for their own industry, what would be be some tips that you can share um, that you know either can help them avoid hurdles essentially, or or at least be aware of them before they come, um, or things that you found that worked really really well and and that you would encourage people to do. Yeah, I mean, I think number one is 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 focusing on a, a problem, right? And the problem has to be big enough and frustrating enough for uh, enough people to have a business, right? And I think people get caught up in that, especially technologists. Sometimes you're like, I have solved this problem so elegantly, and my audience is ten people, right? It's right. it's sort of like it's sort of like you can't sell that, right? So if you look at the you know the most amazing tech companies out there, like Let's take Zoom. We're talking on it, right? 
Right. How did they come to be, right? We used to use, you know, GoToMeeting and WebEx and all the other ones. They just, you know, they they made it better. And that's the second step. So identification of the problem, but then, you know, the execution to a broad set of a, a broad market. Um, you know, and then in the, there's obviously a risk part to that as well, right? I mean, being willing to take on um, the the risks involved in starting a business and going out to a market and trying to change how an industry thinks about, say, master data in my case, or rights in my case, um, there is, you know, it, it takes a little bit of, uh, or a lot of, of homework uh, to make sure it's really a common problem, um, you know, big, big pitfall. Um, and it also takes uh, just a little bit of courage to go out there and do it. So what was the biggest challenge you were, you were facing and had to overcome? I mean, other than kind of convincing the industry, which is a pretty big challenge in and of itself. But like from an internal operational standpoint, what what were some of the roadblocks you ran into? You know, it, any good leadership book will tell you that, you know, it's not nothing is, you, you don't do anything on your own, right? Mm-hmm. So building a team to bring a product to market, to ship a product out the door, especially a SaaS product that's, you know, cloud native and all the rest of it, um, you know, there's always going to be the challenge of building the right team um, that can work autonomously. I mean, our, our, our team is, is pretty small. It's about 25 people, um, but we're working all over the globe, all together, you know, via Slack and all the communication messages uh, or mechanisms. Um, and finding the right people for the right roles is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of paramount because things are not always going to, where you start, the direction you start in may not always be the dire- the place that you end up in. Um, and being able to kind of uh, course correct and modify along the way is, is, is pretty key. And that's, that's all, that's entirely, uh, you know, dependent on your team. Yeah. Did you start remote or did you kind of transition to remote over the last couple of years? Uh, entirely remote. That's great. So, cause I read it, your headquarter was kind of moving to LA. Um, yeah, I mean, so my involvement with Meta is is recent. So I acquired and partnered up with the founder um, in June of this year, um, and we we basically set up a U.S. presence, um, brought in some growth equity, and you know been been doing a lot of sales and marketing in Los in in the, in the U.S. Um, the headquarters office is in the U.K., but pretty distributed. Got it. So. It's interesting that you started remote because this whole kind of remote work atmosphere or or work environment, or or now that a lot of people are talking about a hybrid where you have kind of part in office, part remote, um, it's new to a lot of people, or at least was before COVID hit. Um, How long have you been doing it? I know that I started working remote all the way back in, I think, 2000 nine or 10 um, with certain aspects, you know, but what about your own experience in that? Yeah. I mean, my own experience is, you know, I could say that I've always worked a little bit remotely, but, you know, um, in my previous two companies that I founded and ran, like there was a lot of, um, I was in the office a lot um, or traveling around, but it was mostly in person. Uh, This is the first one where the majority of my time is spent on camera um, which has been nice. You know, I've taken one trip to London and, you know, I'll have a couple more this year, but that's for in the next six months. Um, but actually, you know, what I've found 
you know, I think through the through the pandemic, one of the biggest things that I've seen is is kind of an evaluation of whether or not all the trips and the meetings in person were really necessary, right? It's sh- it's shined a spotlight on like, did we really need to meet for coffee or could we have talked for 15 minutes? Did I really need to be in your office in Australia or could have we just had a Zoom? Right. You know, and like <laughs> a lot of those things go through my head where I'm like, why did I fly to London to meet with you for two hours? Like we could just do this via Zoom, you know? And, and I think that that's, you know, sort of uh, percolated throughout the entire industry. And you see this like, you know, real reduction in business trips. And I'm hoping it stays that way because I would rather, you know, I would rather spend my time more wisely. Yeah, a friend of mine and, and former business partner, he used to be the CTO of IBM Global Solutions. And he he told me that he had a kind of a rule when he worked there. He said, if the travel time is longer than the meeting time, I'm not going. Yeah, it's a good rule. And and I think it is. I mean, there are times where it benefits meeting in person and so forth. And I was at an event a couple of weeks ago. It was the first kind of bigger event that I've been to in a couple of years. And I have to admit, it was nice to be around people and talk and, you know, see who you ran into, some people that I knew from before and, and lots of new connections that were made. And and those kind of interactions happen in the moment and they're harder to do when you're, you know, in, in just kind of a Zoom conference or, or something like that. But for a lot of just productivity reasons, I completely agree with you. A lot can be done via video and be done very efficiently in that matter too. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think there are those, there's those opportunities, you know, there's just going to be fewer and far between go to conferences, but maybe one a year, you know, right, right. Plan, plan, plan a trip to a city like New York and line up all your meetings for the next six months in four days, you know, like just, just little things like that, which I think are, um, I think they're going to be helpful for everyone, everyone's mental space, at least mine, no question. Yeah. So do you see that, that, uh, and I want to ask you kind of more going back to the entertainment indus- industry in a second here, but I don't know if you've made up some thoughts on how that will affect the travel industry. Um, you know, we have one of one of Meta's customers um, serves the airline industry mm-hmm. in that it's responsible for all of the movies and TV that you can watch on the plane. Right. So we handle metadata. You, you, people think of metadata for content as like theatrical and on your TV at home, but it's, it's really kind of everywhere. Um, you know, and, and I think there's, I think business travel, business class travel will, probably will never go back to the same levels it was at, um, you know, if we're, if, if we're honest. No, it's, um, I, I think you're right about that. And it's going to be interesting to kind of watch exactly how things plan out, pan out. And I think, I think even from an event planning standpoint that a lot of people are going to, put more or better efforts into their events to make them really worthwhile coming to because people are going to be making those choices based on do i really need to be there or not yeah for sure you know and we're 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 seeing that we have a a conference that's usually a very uh well-attended conference once a year and it's in amsterdam it's the international broadcasters conference big thing everyone goes to Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think attendance is probably down by 50% or more. Um, so it's even, it's even sort of like cutting into those kind of things, but we'll see yeah. next year is probably a better bellwether of it all. Probably. Yeah. So I want to ask then being in the space you're in, 
and, and interacting with all these players in the entertainment industry and in the digital distribution, where do you see entertainment going, especially digital entertainment? Um, you know, I think certainly, you know, where what, what we've what we've seen to date has been the largest change, right? So people getting rid of their cable, mm-hmm. right? The cord cutting is it's it's almost complete. Like you can see the kind of financial metrics coming out of the traditional large cable providers, uh, and it's not good, right? So we we know that that one sort of like that's happened. And then you know I would I would I would continue to see consolidation, maybe not of the corporate entities themselves, because there's been a ton of M and A activity, right? Um, Amazon just buying MGM and uh, you know all the Disney acquisitions. But I certainly would see maybe um, consolidation in the front end services, right? Because there's still frustration from a consumer perspective where it's like, well, I don't want to sign up for 16 different um, direct consumer apps on my TV, right? right? Because now I'm back into the same world. And so there's probably an aggregator that comes along like a Spotify and you can sign up for one thing and and you get it. And, And I think what YouTube TV has done really well um, as an example, is actually bundling up those things, so all those channels, and selling to selling uh, them them to you as an app, you know, a direct consumer app on your smart TV. And so, just watching all these changes, like you know, I think that we're we're sort of seventy five percent of the way through the big sea change that's going to happen. Um, now it just comes down to how do you find things to watch, right? Well, right, because watch how. Netflix started being kind of the aggregator. Hulu came along pretty fast and they were kind of where you could see things and watch things. And then Prime came along, Prime Video. Um, and then from and that, they kind of had not everything, but they had a good representation of a lot, you know. And then the studios started to pull out and wanted to create their own streaming services. And then, yeah, it was, uh, a, it was a classic example of, well, you try it out first. But once it's really working and it's big enough, well, now we want it all back, right? Right. So, um, Question you know, which is consumers want it, like you said, you know? Right. Uh, but um, then you have them coming, creating their own content too. So that's right. Balance it out, out in that way. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think we'll see a few more changes, but there's no question that kind of, you know, the internet delivery, the over the top, as they call it, OTT uh, in our world which basically means not broadcast and not through cable, i.e. through your internet provider, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's really here to stay. And that's, um, you know, uh, and that does a couple things. One, it's super exciting because the amount of services that you can stream um, just using, you know, digital technology via the internet uh, is above and beyond anything that can come out of an analog broadcast signal. So I think we'll continue to see services like, you know, gaming on demand, gaming subscription services. So I can just sign up for a subscription to play, you know, Halo and all the other, you know, games I want to play. Um, So I think there'll be applications like that that come out of it, um, which which is super interesting. Yeah, and and one thought that I'm sitting here having is, you know, I've been in part of, uh, part of a couple, I've been part of a couple of conversations where uh, there was talk about, you know, companies, uh, or coaches or trainers and, and, you know, different kind of professionals uh, would create their own Roku channels and other kind of digital channels like that. Um, how do you see kind of what you've been involved with playing into that? Cause I can see that that's something where 
you know, it's interesting. Yes, you put stuff on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, but there now there's more places you can, can put it out there, but it also exposes you to some of the IP issues we talked about and kind of the control of your content. Uh, do you see any yeah. kind of you know involvement from on the on the business aspect and the marketing channel, you know, owning the channel aspect in that sense and the content there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still believe that, uh, you know, YouTube will continue to evolve, um, you know, with their, you know, kind of their, their influencer role there and the ability to build channels with huge sub- subscriber bases. And now you're actually starting to see, you know, the money come out of that. Um, so, you know, with a big enough audience, you're making a very healthy living, um, you know, doing interstitial ads in your content. And, you know, most, most of the TVs these days um, have YouTube, YouTube apps natively in them. So I think in the sort of like the lowest barrier to entry content creator market, which would be you or I could start this tomorrow. Um, I think there's, there's big incumbent players that have a good grasp on what's needed. What, what I find, the, you know, a little bit more interesting is um, there's a lot of sort of independent producers of content out there that would, you know, like that are professional but it's not, you know, the Game of Thrones production. You know, it's right. it's lower, it's you know, mid-tier content, low to mid-tier content. And right now, there's not a good avenue for that. I mean, Amazon Prime launched the sort of you know creator uh, avenue, so you you could film a TV show on your on your um, you know on your own video camera in your backyard, and you could actually publish it to Amazon, and people could find it and watch it. Um, but they've, they've since discontinued that because it was sort of like, it was trying to hit that narrow category in the middle. There's, there's probably not probably a, you know, a new killer app there at some point in the future um, that hasn't just hasn't been surfaced yet. Yeah, probably. And I would imagine that more is going to come in that space too. Um, Are there things that you've seen that businesses should be aware of as they put out their own content, especially, you know, any kind of videos or, or similar type of productions? I mean, uh, aside from the big red flags, like don't use, uh, you know, be, be aware of copyright restrictions on things because a lot, you know, a lot of times you have, uh, especially like pr- promotional videos, um, not clearing certain images, you know, you, mm-hmm. you can't have, uh, you know, iconic images in the background from say feature films or something like that. Um, but other than that, you know, I think, I think we obviously live in a world where, you know, content is, uh, distributed more freely. Um, so depending on the usage, um, you know, I think the, the broader distribution could be a lot better. Yeah. So kind of final question here, you guys provide metadata cyber services and, and software as a service around managing right now most of the video on demand right mm-hmm. and so if anybody wants to connect either to get to know more about your services or get you on a podcast or whatever it might want to be uh what's the best way for, for them to reach out to you yeah i mean you know honestly one of the best ways is linkedin i'm there it's linkedin r delf rob delf um certainly you can find us at uh, our meta website which is meta.how h-o-w um, but, uh, please feel free to reach out. Sounds good. Well, Rob, I want to thank you for being on, on our show today. And I know we touched kind of 
high surface level in a couple of things. Um, but if if you guys really are looking into uh, this whole kind of entertainment space, and, you're, and there's a lot of players in that space, and so I would would really encourage you to to look up Meta and uh, connect with Rob and and um, find out if it makes sense for you guys to uh, to partner up with them and to use their services and and otherwise just connect and and get to know Rob because he's a great guy. <laughs> All right, thank thanks a ton, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of C-Suite Perspective. If you would like to be a guest on our show, go to go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. That is go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. And don't forget to hit subscribe to C-Suite Perspective Systems and Processes and leave us a review. Feel free to also share it with your friends and colleagues through your favorite social media channels. And feel free to reach out and connect via social media or go to our website, amazatic.com. That is A-M-A-Z-A-T-I-C.com. My name is Chris, and I thank you for listening to C-Suite Perspective, Systems and Processes.